Chapter Seven of Murder in the Sacristy by Daniel A. Lord S. J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Seven. Sometimes I had an unhappy feeling that Sergeant Riley was working more and more by himself on our desperate case. I could not get over the sickening notion that he lumped Father Tierney and Carl with the other possible suspects and this in spite of the fact that the priest and the young organist were our good and trusted friends. As for Carl, I worried because he too seemed to be hitting off for himself. We saw less of him. We felt that he wasn't taking us into his confidence any more. He looked more tired than even the pressure of worry might explain, and he avoided Father Tierney almost altogether. Yet we did reassemble in the priest's little parlor, the four of us, to sift what trifles we had recently gathered in the now obviously stalling quest. Riley shuffled the mental cards and laid them out before us. The list of possibles is really pretty limited. Unless someone we don't know, haven't even met, someone who blundered in and stumbled on the jewels, I began. Riley thrust the suggestion aside with disgust. There is no stranger in this, he said. Whoever did it knew about the jewels, and we know everyone who knew. Whoever did it knew that Father here had them in his possession, knew something of the habits of that unlucky sacristan. We agreed readily enough, though we hated to admit the plausibility of his theory, for by admitting that we were drawing the circle too closely around the few who might be involved. Riley was summarizing again. Even though he slipped out this time, Schwartz is high up on the list. I'll admit that the senator's explanation makes the whole business of the way his wife got the jewels sound less fishy, but yet... Could the Jap himself? Carl began in tentative questioning. Riley looked thoughtful again. Headquarters tracked down what they could find of his record. Just nothing. He paused and scratched his blue-black stubble with a tough fingernail. Then he jumped to his feet. By golly, he said softly, that's a possibility. Carl, phone Professor Jones at the university. Carl looked bewildered. He said of the Department of Japanese Literature, Riley explained. Ask him to drop around to headquarters in two hours. Riley jumped up and grabbed the priest's phone, shouting into it the well-remembered number of police headquarters. Riley speaking, I'll have some films, perhaps in two hours. I want them developed immediately. Have the darkroom ready. He hung up the phone and grabbed his hat. If any of you are interested. We'll be there, I answered for Carl and myself. Then I added, half humorous, headquarters in two hours. Riley almost rushed into the police laboratory in his excitement. Professor Jones was sitting placidly reading a detective story, which I thought a touch, with living detectives around him. Maybe fiction is more exciting than life. The police officer from the Identification Bureau was waiting, a rubber laboratory apron in his hand. Riley emptied his pockets and shot the contents in various directions. Professor, he said, if you'll just see whether you can read these and he tossed the professor a bundle of envelopes containing the thin rice paper that he used for most Japanese correspondence. In the direction of the laboratory policeman, he volleyed three rolls of film, carefully wrapped in the familiar red jackets, and get those developed, but not printed, immediately. The professor retired to the inner sanctum of his own soul. The laboratory specialist disappeared, and Riley took off his hat and wiped his sweaty brow. That Jap, he muttered, and then addressing the world at large, I'd as soon try to cross-question a freshly-caught codfish, but I got him in the end, or I hope I got him. He paused ruefully, as if he were far from sure of himself. 
"'What's in those letters?' I demanded. "'And why the film?' Riley looked up in mock despair. "'If I knew, would I be calling in experts? Maybe something. Maybe nothing but a joke on me. And when he answered me in that double talk that makes the Japanese such a chummy commutative race, I suddenly sprang a search warrant, and believe me or not, he actually helped me search his belongings. And he was amused when I took the letters in the film. Positively amused.' The professor looked up from the mass of rice paper. "'Whoever your Japanese friend is, and his name doesn't seem to be quite correct Japanese, he's a nobleman, has connections with people in high places, and is here in the States on government business.' Riley slapped his thigh delightedly. "'Wrong, professor. He admits he's only a poor sort of butler.' The professor turned back to the letters with a sage nod. "'I have heard of important Japanese before who were glad to be just butlers.' His voice trailed off, if they could serve in the right houses. So that was that, I thought, or rather that was just the beginning of something new and important and significant, with Japan and Russia at each other's throats, and Japan knowing of these Russian jewels. The laboratory specialist returned, trailing behind him a long black snake of damp film. A rush job, he said, and I'll have to wash them some more, but... Listen, Riley, you're wasting your time. He held the film up to the light. Not even pictures, just a lot of scratches like the kind I get on my laundry. Dry him, commanded Riley, and fast. And he began to push buttons and summon people until we had a projector set up. Then the films came back, now dry, and they were thrown on the small screen. We all leaned forward in our chairs while the professor spelled out the crawling worms of letters with surprising fluency. As far as the murder and the theft were concerned, not a thing did those films mean. As far as our good friend Ituro Najaki was concerned, they meant plenty. For those films were instructions to an espionage chief who, it seemed, was in constant communication with subordinates who were too close to our arsenals and navy yards for the comfort of the United States. Then at the very end the professor sprang the surprise. Funds, he read in the toneless voice of a translator, are painfully low. We cannot long hide this from ourselves or from the nation. If at Russia's cost or the cost of any of our other enemies you can obtain funds, money for munitions, aid in meeting our mounting debt. The professor stopped. Go on, I cried breathlessly. That's all, said the professor. Do we need any more? demanded Riley. I'd say the professor's read enough to hang on our jab a motive that. Ah, I thought ruefully, but that's precisely the trouble. There are too many people, too many motives. Too much everything, in fact, except a nice tangible thing like a clue, a murderer, or the missing jewels. Carl left us soon after this, and was gone for the rest of the afternoon. Just before six o'clock, however, my phone rang, and it was Riley. He was having dinner with Carl. Would I join them? As fast as the elevator could manage it, I was with them, and our problem was again hanging heavy, heavy over our heads. Only when we had reached dessert did Carl take over the discussion. This time, he said, I'm not going to play the fool again. I may be crazy, but I prefer to be crazy with a couple of other fellows. Meaning us, I asked. With whom else would I share my delightful insanity, he demanded, and we both bowed our ironic gratitude. We are going back to the church tonight, as calmly as if he had announced that we were going out to see the Marx Brothers at a neighborhood movie house. All three of us. As I say, I may be simply mad... But if I'm not? Mad or not, we were with him, and when the evening was dropping quietly into night, 
we presented our papers to the policeman during sentry duty outside the church and followed riley into the dark interior wait said riley until i turn on the lights only there weren't any riley clicked the switch up and down with no results other than the sharp sound through the thick darkness evidently the electricity had been turned off riley produced his flash and muttered grimly to himself about the joy of working in unlighted buildings and getting beaten over the head i added cheerfully he flashed off his light to save the batteries and in the darkness he said almost querulously carl i think that it's about time we stopped playing fraternity initiation and you told us what it's all about carl steered us into a back pew sit he commanded now if i may have the flash i thought i could feel riley hesitating ever so slightly before he handed it over maybe carl followed it maybe not at any rate he said if you feel more comfortable with your gun in your hand riley and the sergeant growled again if you'll be patient just a moment carl said and with a quick leap the white circle of the flash convoying him he was up the dark stairs i heard him snap the organ switch but nothing happened the juice that fed the lights fed the electric motor too the muffled sound from the choir loft might have been an oath at least riley cried out in mock horror not in church carl not in church then i heard the unmistakable sounds of someone prowling around the choir loft then a pleased exclamation from carl and his voice calling us this was not originally an electric organ he said the old-fashioned pan pump is still here you fellows come up and help me we were up the stairs in three bounds and carl gestured toward the handle of the pump which was thrust out like an exaggerated dog-tail pump commanded riley i never was good at music I caught the wheezy pump handle and slowly moved it up and down. Carl moved a few of the stops experimentally. Then he touched a single note. It sounded soft and mellow, even against the scraping of the ancient bellows. Then quietly, Carl matched that single note with a grouping of chords, playing them tentatively, experimentally. It was a lovely fullness that sounded warm and comforting in the darkness. And all the while, Riley kept the white circle of his flash like a spotlight on the man at the organ. Slowly Carl moved the successive modulation of the chords up the keyboard. All of a sudden a single high squeak came from the organ. As suddenly Carl jerked his fingers from all the other keys, and as if to drive us mad with the wailing of that false tone, he kept his finger pressed on the controlling key. B-flat, second octave below middle C, he said, and then without warning he ran a chromatic scale from the middle of the keyboard up to the very top. Then he reversed the direction of his skillful fingers and ran the scale downward to the very last note. Only once did the ancient organ squeak in protest, and that was when somewhere in the mid-bass that single note was hit. "'If you ask me,' said I, stopping my actions at the pump for the exertion was beginning to make me perspire, "'I've heard you do lots better. Let's go where we can get a good organ, and then you can really give us a concert.' For once Carl was rude and abrupt. "'Keep pumping,' he ordered and then to Riley, where's that screwdriver I told you to bring? Riley fished the parts of a screwdriver out of his pocket and jointed them together. Press down on that pump, Carl cried, and his expert fingers again picked out the discordant note. Here, Riley, he commanded, put your finger on that. Riley obeyed in a kind of daze and laid his heavy, stocky finger gingerly on the yellowish-white key. Instantly Carl was off the bench and hauling a plain wooden chair toward the organ. Keep pumping hard, he commanded don't let go of that key 
and as he passed the keyboard he pulled out another handful of stops that swelled the volume until that horrible out-of-tune note simply whined and shrieked and yelled at us i thought i couldn't stand the noise but my attention was sharply caught by the strange actions of carl with that screwdriver he was working at the ornamental pipes in front of the organ false pipes of course he said all cheap organs are built like that keep pumping he cried then he put his head close to the pipes that showed up within your flash he demanded of riley but hold on to that key then in a second i've got it stop pumping riley your music lesson is over turn the flash on me while i work hold it steady and with that screwdriver he dug out the big screws that held a bass pipe then he cried catch it and the pipe began to sway in our direction the last screw was almost out but carl didn't wait to remove it entirely he wrenched at the pipe dragging it out of place and tipped it in his arms out from the interior into the white light of the flash slid a slow brilliant dazzling rain of stones that dropped into the outstretched hands of riley and then into the hat that i held under the gentle but stupefying flow there must have been fully ten of the gems at first riley was speechless with delight then he was overcome with the realization that we had only part of the loot where is the rest he demanded carl caught the flash out of his hands and worked behind the pipes he pulled out more jewels and more and more if it hadn't been he explained as he worked that that one pipe caught some of the jewels as they were tossed into the organ we'd not have known they were here they'd have lain there until the thief came to look for them himself how in thunder did you know demanded riley carl who had now sunk down upon the bench in relief and happiness dusting the dirt of the ancient organ off his hands laughed in weariness in the triumph of his discovery i should have guessed it the other night he said when the fellow or woman was working up here that squeak meant that something was caught in a pipe and whoever was playing the organ was looking for that squeak he ran the keyboard again and again until he got the right note then in the darkness i heard scraping that was when he or she went to work on the pipes only well i was a thickhead nor is that goose egg on my sconce knocked whatever little sense i had out of it until this evening riley turned the flash into the hat my hat full of jewels he balanced them in his hands and then he looked up in cynical disgust frankly he said though this is fine i'd rather a lot rather have my hands on the murderer and the thief riley had the jewels but what good were they they did not prove the innocence of father tierney indeed the fact that they were hidden in his church might be new reason for suspecting him carl well carl had helped find them but on the other hand if carl had hidden them first and then fearing that the situation was growing too hot had merely discovered what he knew all the time was there as for the others now that the jewels were found there was less chance than ever of finding the murderer and thief i knew just how tricked riley felt he had the motive for the crime he didn't have the criminal who had snuffed out two lives to gain these jewels i leaned against the rail looking out into the darkness of the church riley sat silent his heavy shoes beating against the base of the organ bench carl took a turn up and down the loft riley grumbled deep in his chest what good are these things not even a decent reward for them i'd rather a thousand times rather we'd never seen the things again if only we could lay by his heels the man or woman i insisted and then carl snapped his fingers and laughed aloud 
I knew that the creative fever that was on him had had a gratifying result. Well, demanded Riley, and Carl talked fast. If the jewels were no longer in the organ, we'd have not the slightest chance of finding the murderer. But if the jewels were replaced, if we stood guard over them, let the murderer and thief know that we suspected where they were, and that we meant to go for them, he, or she, would try to beat us to them, and in the act would give himself away. Riley sat for a second in profoundest thought. Then he was on his feet with a thump that shook the ancient choir loft. He held out the hatful of jewels to Carl. I'm a fool, he said, and I may lose my job for this, but I believe you're right. Stick him back exactly the way we found him. It was harder, we found, to replace an organ pipe than it was to rip it out. But Carl knew organs, and he handled that screwdriver with a skill I'd never have suspected in those musically trained fingers. But while Carl was working, Riley was giving voice to his doubt. Aren't we actually giving the thief another chance at the jewels? Suppose he outsmarts us. Suppose he gets the jewels and gets away with them. How could we ever explain to the authorities that we'd actually had the jewels in our hands, and then put them back into the organ as bait for the thief, who may be smart enough to get them, and never even flick his lower lip on the hook we are baiting so carefully? But he was determined to go ahead. He left us inside the church while he made a few routine calls. When he came back, we drew lots to see which one would spend the first stretch guarding the jewels. No watch necessary, really, said Riley, before late tomorrow afternoon. By that time we'll get the word to all the suspects, and then it's a sleepless guard till the thief's nervous anxiety to get his jewels puts him right into our hands. Then he almost jumped with the suddenness of his idea. Hold everything! Along with the hint that we're on the trail of the jewels, we'll send out the hint that the church is being freed from police guard because nothing suspicious has been found there. That plants the fear that the jewels may be found, yet removes the fear of capturing the church itself. So the reporters found Riley uncommonly communicative, when around midnight they stopped him and demanded some news. In the morning papers announced in splash headlines that the police were hot on the trail of the missing jewels, and that the guard at the church of St. Sergius had at last been completely lifted by the police. We agreed, we three, to keep four-hour vigils. I was to watch from eight o'clock to midnight, Riley from midnight until four, Carl from four until eight. During the day, a plainclothes man in the vicinity would be guard enough. Riley had us sworn in as deputy sheriffs, who presented each of us with a badge and a gun, which, truth to tell, gave us a considerable thrill. And after dinner I set off for my first spell of sentry duty, entered the locked church by the window that Carl had previously opened, and settling down in a back pew. I did manage to stay awake, and dull business it was. At midnight Riley entered the window and took over, and I went home. We met the following noon with nothing to report, and the following noon we had even less. On the third night my watch was as eventless as the life of a maroon sailor on an uninhabited island in the Pacific. So, with real relief, I gave my watch over to Riley. Just for luck, we tested the organ, and found it had been untouched, and I left the church, as I had entered it, through the window. It was a little after nine o'clock in the morning, when my phone's insistent ring pulled me up short. I answered sleepily, and in considerable disgust. For much as I hate telephones, I hate them most when they substitute for an alarm clock. And then I jumped to attention. It was Riley. Get down here fast, he said, and I knew it was urgent. I'm in Providence Hospital. Come up to room 339, he ordered, and he clicked off. 
I think a new record was established between my apartment and Providence, and another one between the hospital lobby and 339. Riley's voice answered my knock, and I entered to find Riley and another detective standing against the wall. And in the bed, his head bandaged and his right eye a villainous mass of colors, lay Carl Reinhardt, too sick apparently to care who came or went in his room. Carl, I cried, and then turning to Riley with a quick grasp of what had happened, they're gone. Riley nodded grimly. I didn't care that Carl looked like Death's younger brother. I dashed to the side of his bed and cried, pressing his hand. I don't believe you did it. No one can persuade me you did. Carl opened his eyes wearily. He grinned and pressed my hand in return. Twice is pretty often, said Riley, in what I thought needless cruelty, but maybe you'd like to hear a story. I turned angrily on Riley. If you don't mind, I said, I'd rather leave a sick man in peace. Would you mind detailing someone to go with me to the church? Riley leaned against the wall. Come on, he said, then barking at the other detective. Settle down and make yourself comfortable. You'll be relieved around noon. In the taxi that raced across town, Riley unbent enough to tell his version of the story. Carl, it seems, claimed that around five or six o'clock he fell asleep, which of course was most convenient, footnoted Riley. The next he knew, daylight was streaming in the window, and he had a bump on his head that made the other goose egg feel like a slight pimple. When he staggered out of the church, the plainclothes man, who took over at eight, spotted him, caught him just as he was falling, rushed him off to Providence. Carl claims all he knows is that he's a mighty, mighty sick young man, and I know he has an awful lot to explain. We piled out of the taxi in front of the church and bolted in. Father Tierney was kneeling in the back, saying his office. He got up when we entered. You might, he said, have let me in on the fact that you had actually found the jewels. And how do you know we found the jewels? demanded Riley, suddenly dramatically tough. The priest didn't deign to answer. He merely watched us as we climbed the stairs to the organ loft. And it was a mess. This time there was no question of there having been a delicate handling of a screwdriver. The whole front of false pipes was ripped out, and the base pipe that had held the telltale jewels lay on the floor, where it had been carelessly tossed. Not so much as a single small garnet of the cache of jewels remained. All clear, said I, but how can a man knock himself out? Carl is a sick, sick man. Do you mean to tell me that he beat himself over the head? Riley looked his contempt. An old gag, he said, and he trotted down the stairs, I after him. A window far in the back of the church was wide open. From under a pew where he had evidently hidden it, Riley pulled out a hammer tied by a string to a brick. We found this outside the window on the ground. S.S. Van Dyne used the trick in one of his stories, but it's all good. The victim hangs the brick outside the window, sits near the window, bangs himself on the head with a hammer, passes out like a light, and drops the hammer. The brick pulls the hammer out of the window, and it's picked up by the supposed victim later on. I looked amazed, but Riley stopped and gazed intently at the floor. Only, he said, this time the victim didn't retrieve the hammer. It's funny. I wonder why he didn't. End of chapter 7 Recording by Maria Therese